with issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 225 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, co-investigator in a fish mystery. Should we just leave that, Jen? Hang in there and not ask <laughs> what she means by it. A fish tree. One of our fish has gone missing. Oh, I think I know how this ends, Mick. That sounds like an old Disney film from the 60s. <laughs> One of our fish is missing. Yes. So, Jen, I understand what that noise means. That noise means, Mick, stop being so fucking naive. It's died and the other fish have eaten it. But they have not eaten any other fish that has died. We did have fish who, like, literally somehow, or maybe it was the cat, I don't know, but, like, found their way out of the... Have you got, like, a lid on it? Yeah, there's no way they can get out. No way the cat can get in. Nope. Clarky is so disinterested by the fish tank as well. He eats his dinner next to it. The most he does is rub some meat on it when he's finished his tea. That's it. We did have fish that did used to eat each other. And we also had fishes that sometimes managed to get out. Again, that might have been with the help of a cat. Oh, I forgot to tell you, though, my credit card is also missing. Do you think it's linked? <laughs> oh, my God, do you think she's out having the best time she's ever she's had? She's having a literal small whale of her life. <laughs> uh, she's gone to see Hamilton. Yeah, seven <laughs> times. <laughs> More news as it happens. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I had a very bad experience in a maze. Oh, dear. Tell us. You know this, but maybe our listeners know this, that I have something it's not vertigo but it is basically vertigo and it'd be too long to explain what it is so so let's just call it vertigo which means that I sometimes have dizzy fits and if you read the bush telegram you'll know that last week I went to Blenheim Palace with my mum and with one of my aunties I won't name her I won't name and shame her but we're going to call her auntie zero sense of direction she has (laughs) No idea. If we walk into a room and then walk out again, she doesn't know which direction to walk in. So there's a maze at Blenheim and I decided it might be fun. It might be retro to go in the maze. Mm -hmm. Mary, my mum, she didn't want to go. Um, I think maybe she had a premonition. She decided (laughs) to sit outside the maze and wait. And we went in and we were about five or six turns into it, not very deep into it at all. And I had an attack of vertigo really badly which means that I couldn't see anything and I was about to throw up and I couldn't walk in a straight line and auntie no sense of direction had to get me out of it (laughs) and it was genuinely just horrific I was just going I'm gonna vomit I'm gonna vomit I can't see anything and she was like did we go left or right here? Oh. And I'm like, I can't, I can't see anything. I don't know what's Did you happening. accidentally make it to the middle? No. Okay. We made it to the entrance, which is what we were heading for, and passed some people who thought that we looked insane. I mean, the irony was I'd gone in on a carer pass for my mum. <laughs> <laughs> and I was the one that nearly had to be airlifted out of a maze. Did you see a small fish while you were in there? <laughs> no sympathies it sounds horrific no Hannah that was not the lol story I was uh, expecting <laughs> to be honest uh, <laughs> I nearly vomited on a small child in a maze <laughs> you had a horrific and traumatic experience in, in a maze yeah I'm Jen Offord and this weekend I went to my first shanty festival who are did you do some singing no I don't mean that I mean arr. I didn't do any singing uh, my mum did some singing with her shanty crew uh, I don't know if that's the correct terminology. 
Seems about right, doesn't it? Cream, Why not? Shanties. Um, I did go to a shanty open mic night. I, again, I didn't sing, but um, <laughs> let me tell you, it's a vibe, a, uh, a shanty open <laughs> mic night. I couldn't tell you what that vibe was, but it certainly was one. Great times, great times, guys. You may recall that Jen turned 40 a couple of weeks ago, and this explains her new hobby. It's not a hobby, it's uh, it's sure. Harwich International Shanty Festival. Happens once a year, I've never been to it before, I had a lovely time. International, people come from abroad. Yeah, man, it was heaving. Did they sail there? I don't think I, I, I certainly didn't encounter anyone who'd sailed here, maybe, who knows. There was a man who had taken the foot ferry from Shotley, which is uh, over near Ipswich. I think that's a yes, Hannah, that's a yes. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, I chat to Guardian journalist Shirin Kala about her new podcast, Can I Tell You a Secret? and why we all need to take cyberstalking seriously. I speak to actors Kate Farhi and Marion Bailey about playing Margaret Thatcher and the Queen in Handbagged, which is on at the Kiln Theatre until October the 29th. In Jenny Off the Blocks, we're chatting all things international. Is this a sea shanty again? No, not this time. <laughs> And I throw a much-loved film to the rated or dated rodents of unusual size as we watch 1987's The Princess Bride. But first, good energy, bad energy and a whole lot of hands. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Swimming through the shit-infested news like it's a beach managed by southern water. Oh dear. I don't know if you saw this. I did not. About 2,000 people turned up to a beach at Whitstable at the weekend to complain about how much shit is going into the sea there. Well, Hannah, I, as you know, live on the coast and um, in the days prior to uh, European directives that told water companies and whoever that they literally weren't allowed to like just pump shit into the sea, Harwich used to be... I think eighth dirtiest beach in Europe or something like that. Quite the accolades. And uh, yeah, sometimes when the wind blew in a certain direction, it literally, you could smell the shit that they were just pumping into the sea. So um, good to know we're going back to those old days. Good old days, eh? Although the good news now, Jen, is if you want to uh, save some water by not flushing the toilet, you can just shit directly into the sea. Bear that in mind. Talking of shit. <laughs> Quite. So I would open this story with it was a bad week for Liz Truss, but I think at this stage that just sort of goes without saying, doesn't it? It's, yep. it's kind of a given. So instead, let's focus on her government, more specifically Connor Burns, who was relieved of his position as trade minister last week after allegations of serious misconduct were made against him. I know what you're thinking, and no, I didn't know who he was either. <laughs> And yes, it is unfortunate to be a former minister who is best known for, it is alleged, touching a young man's thigh. Burns took to Twitter last week to tell followers that he had been informed by the chief whip that a complaint had been made against him, that the whip was therefore being withdrawn, but that no further information had been given to him. As in, he didn't know what the complaint was about. He nonetheless looks forward to clearing his name. <laughs> Whatever it was, I didn't do it. Didn't do it. I'm absolutely sure. He said that he would fully cooperate with the party's inquiry. In a tantalising cliffhanger and most unexpected plot twist, Melanie Brown, a.k.a. Scary Spice, got involved in proceedings to claim on Twitter, Really? You're shocked about this complaint? Let me remind you what you said to me in Lyft. 
That's what she types. I didn't miss the uh. Now, I don't understand what he said to Melby in a lift or indeed in Or lift. indeed what, what he was doing in a lift with Melby. <laughs> or indeed why Melby would recognise him when <laughs> none of us know who he is. Very strange. Very strange. But this isn't Burns' first rodeo as trade minister, apparently. He previously stood down from the position after the common standard watchdog found he had made, and I quote, veiled threats to use his parliamentary privilege to, and I quote, further his family's interests, which does rather beg the question how he ended up back in office. But hey, there's not exactly a full buffet of options open to Liz at the moment in terms of ministerial talent. Yeah, it's definitely a very beige buffet, isn't it? It's, it's a very beige buffet. Very Keith Lorraine and uh, sausage rolls. It's, yeah, there's no excitement there, is there? I suppose that is why she's chosen a man as his replacement called Greg Hands. I just thought it was unfortunate to uh, remove the whip from someone who was accused of effectively being a bit handsy and then replacing him with a man called Greg Hands. <laughs> this is the kind of thing... This, this is why we have PR people. So, let's talk about the ever-worsening energy crisis, which last week saw a suggestion that we could see power cuts this winter in order to reduce usage. National Grid warned that British households could lose power for up to three hours at a time this winter if, and that's the crucial point, if gas supplies run extremely low. It's important to add that the company said this was, quote, unlikely, but also, quote, a possibility. (laughs) If, and again, it's an if, the energy crisis escalated. Will things escalate? Who knows? Sadly, that's down to all sorts of things outside our control and people outside of anybody's control. It's nice to feel so settled and secure, isn't it? Like, you know, it's it's so, so good. National Grid added that cuts would likely occur at peak times and customers would be warned in advance. So presumably we can all run and charge our phones and then cause a spike and use exactly the same amount of power anyway. But who knows? But... As a base case, again, I'm putting that in quotes, National Grid expects homes will face no problems. Cabinet Office Minister Nadim Sahawi told Sky News that power blackouts this winter are, what he's saying, extremely unlikely, and added that there was no need for the government to spend £14 million on an energy-saving public information campaign, given that advice was already available. I mean, yes, Advice is absolutely available from a myriad of sources, but some of it is better than others and some of it is absolute shite. So maybe putting all the good advice in one place isn't a bad idea and is, I'd imagine, a shitload cheaper than £14 million. Meanwhile, some of the media is having a jolly old time writing pieces around the energy crisis, which only serves to underline quite how far most of its readers are from the gathering storm. First up, a piece in The Observer about how many European tourist destinations are pitching themselves as a place for cold British pensioners to go (laughs) not to be cold. I mean, come on, Grandma. Stop worrying about the energy wasted by having the microwave light flicking on and off 24 hours a day and get on a plane. That sounds practical. Meanwhile, The Guardian wrote a fun piece about how everyone is rushing out to buy a £90 onesie from Lakeland and £30 slippers which keep your feet warm for hours provided that you put them in the microwave first. Listen up families of five worried sick about turning the heating on the answer to all your problems is here. Mm. The piece even quoted a John Lewis customer happy with their onesie purchase. It makes me feel like a big marshmallow. I'm not sure I've ever wanted to say oh do fuck off more. 
And then, just a few days later, the same paper runs a piece mocking French politicians for saying that they would be wearing turtlenecks instead of shirts and ties. I absolutely despair. It's really starting to get on my nerves, this thing where advice is deemed as good or bad, depending on whether or not you like that person, right? Mm. So if Martin Lewis says, you know, this is a way to be more energy efficient, everyone claps their hands together. But if a French minister says it, then it's like, no, fuck off. That can't possibly be right. I find it all a bit unhelpful. It's not a great situation, is it? A conservative MP tweeted last week that, the best way to ensure that there weren't power cuts this winter was by voting Conservative. And I was like, you seem to have misunderstood right. a few things here. A, we, we, we can't. We don't have a choice. <laughs> we haven't got an election. <laughs> like, yeah. I'd love to not vote for you, but I, I've not got an election <laughs> coming up as far as I'm aware. And B, we are currently governed by checks notes, the Conservatives, <laughs> under exactly. whom all of this shit is unfurling. So, great. It's just totally ridiculous to to literally say, here's how people are saving themselves from the energy crisis. It's only going to cost you £120 per person in your house. Yeah. That's quite a lot, isn't it, when you think about the... Uh, I mean, that is... There's five of you. Does, just the quick maths. Um, that's like, yeah. what, £600? Probably more than turning the heating on. Flipping heck. Anyway, sticking with the topic of energy, I have a good news story for you, Jen, if you're interested. Thank Christ. And that is that a Scottish nightclub has found that it can reduce its carbon footprint by 70 tonnes per year by using heat generated in the club and converting it to thermal energy. Mm-hmm. That's right. Sweaty bollocks dancing can save the environment. <laughs> I fucking knew it. Glasgow-based venue SWG3 has a dance floor that absorbs body heat and converts it into thermal energy. Between 250 and 60 watts, depending on how banging the tune is. The club has committed to carbon neutrality by 2025 and managers say that despite costing £600,000, they can recoup the investment in five years by disconnecting the gas boilers. The thermal energy is channeled via a carrier fluid. (laughs) I don't know if that means sweat or not, but it sounds like it does, doesn't it? To a borehole 200 metres underground where it is charged like a thermal battery before being pumped back up to provide either heating or air conditioning to the club. Wow. Yeah. Keep dancing. Is that like when they they have like someone at a fate where where people like pedal to charge the phone? Oh, it... Like a dynamo? Did you, yeah. Did you ever have a dynamo light on your bike? <laughs> Only yeah. at centre parks, but yes. <laughs> I have experienced a dynamo light before. Wow. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we say unintended consequences be damned. They're only women after all. Yeah. What could be more annoying for small business owners than red tape, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can think of a few things, but let's not let those get in the way of a long-pedalled soundbite best enjoyed with a can of Bombardier in the ITV news. <laughs> I am being a little bit facetious here because I'm sure that red tape is annoying for small business owners. But hey, I'm a big fan of things like, I don't know, health and safety and workers' rights, for example. <laughs> oh my God, Jen, you're so crazy. What a twat. 
A new government policy which quietly came into effect last week could have huge ramifications for all of the above, according to the Trades Union Congress. And that policy is that the classification of small business was changed from companies with up to 50 employees to up to 500 employees, which is... That sounds like quite a big business. It's, a, it's quite a big leap, isn't it? Previously, that would have been a medium-sized business. According to the government, almost 40,000 businesses will be freed from the shackles of future bureaucracy and the accompanying paperwork that is expensive and burdensome. If you've got 500 employees, surely you've got some fucker who can fill it out. You'd hope so. Paperwork such as, for example, gender pay gap recording. Who cares about that? Who cares? It's only women. The gender pay gap information regulations came into effect in April 2017 and they required companies with over 250 employees to report the discrepancy in earnings between their male and female employees. It's fair to say they have not been taken terribly seriously (laughs) in that time by those who were required to report or indeed by government. And we have spoken countless times about things like delays in reporting, for example. But the policy change means that requirements for reporting now only include companies with more than 500 employees. Again, quite a big leap, which would exclude thousands of businesses from the process, a move which the TUC said was a, quote, reckless and cynical attempt to, quote, rip up employees' rights, simply serving as a, quote, boon to greedy bosses. Mm-hmm. But don't worry, the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, that's changed again, hasn't it? They are a very changeable department (laughs) in terms of names. They are on it. Uh, That's almost all of my fears dealt with there, Jen. (laughs) Almost all, yeah. Uh, Ministers will set out further guidance in due course, the department said. Again, I mean, that sounds great to me. In due course, yeah. No rush, guys, no rush. It said that it did not yet have the... And I quote, granular detail. So we await grains of government policy with breath (laughs) that is baited. Wouldn't it be lovely if they just did the fucking work before they introduced a policy just for once? Like, yes. I'm joined by Sharon Carlett, features writer at The Guardian and host of the new podcast, Can I Tell You a Secret? Hi, Sharon. Thanks very much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you about this podcast because I've listened to all of them now and I've really, really enjoyed it. I found it like absolutely gripping. Could you tell us a little bit about what it's about? Sure. Thank you for listening to it. I um, I feel like most people have binged it. So Can I Tell You a Secret is a six-part Guardian podcast. It's an investigative narrative podcast and it is about an individual called Matthew Hardy who stalks women and girls from his hometown online and then progressed outwards to stalking women and girls all across the country online for over a decade. I don't want to give too much away, but he is believed to be one of the UK's most prolific cyber stalkers. Um, although I'll caveat that by saying we don't know exactly how many victims he's had. I think it's a really interesting story for me because it goes into a lot of areas that I'm really fascinated by, like how we deal with stalking in this country. Stalking is primarily a gendered crime. You know, sort of victim blaming that often goes on when women are the victims of stalking, particularly when it's online stalking. 
and it's also a story about social media as well and how the way we use the internet has really changed in the last decade you know I found it so interesting going back and looking at how we were all using Facebook in 2011 2012 and it's just you know only a decade ago but it feels so far away from where we are now and it's also a story about what sort of support we put in place for people who might have vulnerabilities and how we should view people who have done terrible things but who also might have had a lot going on in their lives that might have influenced or contributed to the things that they did. I have to say I had never heard of this guy before obviously then I went and googled it and saw all the media reports at the time so it was like it was a big story at the time but I don't remember ever having seen this story before how did it sort of come to your attention and and what made you think oh right okay that's that's an interesting story oh I was asked by my editor at the Guardian to write something about stalking and I started looking around and I spoke to a friend actually of mine who had recently finished a big project on stalking and she mentioned the Matthew Hardy case to me and when I looked at it what was interesting about his case was that he had only really been reported on in local press and no one had really drawn together all the pieces of his story into like a coherent whole at the time that I started looking at this he had been convicted of stalking and harassment and sentenced to nine years in jail and there'd been quite a lot of local newspaper articles about how you know he'd been sent to jail for nine years but I have quite a deep background in stalking because um, when I was at my old publication, Vice, the global youth media brand, I had done a lot of work around stalking. So I knew that nine years was a really exceptionally long sentence. And when I looked more into Matthew's case, I became convinced that this actually possibly was the longest ever sentence given to a stalker in a British court. And so that was really interesting to me. And then the more I dug into it, the more I realised that Although there were nine victims named in that particular case, it seemed likely that there were a lot more. And I sort of just followed that breadcrumb trail and I kept looking into it and looking into it. And this story emerged of this individual who had been stalking women for over a decade and largely getting away with it for most of that time. And that was fascinating to me. One of the things that sort of struck me about it is that when you think of stalking you kind of think of you know some some guy in a trench coat hanging around outside your house or whatever you don't really think about it in in the way that it's presented here but this is a digital context of course and and that's sort of one of the things that you said is was particularly interesting to you do you think people have much of an understanding about what digital stalking or cyber stalking rather actually is or how vulnerable we are No, absolutely not. And that's why I've been really happy to do this podcast to try and explain to people that cyber stalking is really, really damaging and really dangerous and happens to a lot of people. What I want to be careful, though, is I I think often there's a false distinction that's set up where people think they're stalking and that's, you know, someone outside your house watching you through your windows or following you to work. And that's more serious than cyber stalking which is, you know, people just being mean to you online. And that is totally not true. Cyberstalking can be just as dangerous, just as damaging. It can really, really, really mess up people's lives. You know, some of the victims of Matthew that I spoke to for the podcast, like one victim in particular, Amy Bailey, told me that she'd been on antidepressants for years as a result of Matthew stalking. You know, he just completely destroyed her sense of safety and ability to exist in the world. And I think it's also really important to point out that cyberstalking is stalking. They're not distinct criminal offences, most stalkers will stalk their victims online in addition to stalking them in person. 
And Matthew was prosecuted under stalking laws. He wasn't prosecuted under cyber stalking laws. So, you know, Matthew's a stalker who just happened to stalk people online. But yes, I think part of the problem when it comes to looking at this case is that police forces have historically looked at stalking in terms of physical real world harm. So as a result, police officers didn't take his victims seriously and didn't do enough to stop him. And that that was a sort of really continual theme that emerged throughout my reporting, which would just be that victims felt that they were not being taken seriously. And but that was primarily because it was online. So what they would often hear from police is sentiments like, oh, just block him, it will go away. And firstly, I think that's really re-victimising the victims because they shouldn't have to change their behaviour. They should just be able to live lives free of stalking. And secondly, it, it didn't often work. Often blocking Matthew didn't make him go away. So I really hope that this could be a good educational piece for everybody to understand how serious and damaging stalking is. And I really hope that the police also start to recognise that too. The criminal justice system does not tend to treat women who are victims of violent crimes or sexual violence or things like stalking and harassment doesn't tend to treat women very well and I wanted to ask you a little bit about how the victims were treated by the police but it wasn't just the police either was it it was their families as well in some cases there was a kind of general consensus of well you know what you're doing putting a picture of yourself in a bikini or whatever on on the internet I mean, I think we can definitely say the police don't do a good job when it comes to prosecution stalking. I think in England and Wales, there's 1.5 million victims of stalking a year and we have a 0.1% conviction rate. So I'd say that's about as abysmal as you can possibly get. It doesn't really get any worse than that, does it? Yes, the police are horribly bad at this. So is the CPS as well. I don't want to let the Crown Prosecution Service off the hook. It's their job to actually take these cases to court, which they don't. It's the same with rape cases as well, you know, Rape is basically just not being prosecuted in the UK at the moment. Can't think of a better country to be a rapist or a stalker than the UK right now. That doesn't bring me any sort of joy to say that. It's horrifying. Predominantly, when women who were victims of Matthew went to the police, they were just consistently minimised and told to just block him and it would go away. Or, you know, just given a crime reference number that no one ever followed up on. I do want to give PC Kevin Anderson his props. Matthew would not be in jail were it not for Casey Kevin Anderson, in, in my opinion. He is a police officer at Cheshire Police and he just absolutely got it from day one and he was horrified by what Matthew was doing and he worked really, really, really tirelessly to, to get justice for Matthew's victims and stop this offending. So PC Kevin Anderson is, you know, certainly one of the good guys here. In terms of the response from uh, people's family and friends, you know, it's not the case that all of the victims' family and friends were critical of them, but it's certainly the case that in some, some instances, the victims were just seen to have brought this upon themselves by being so online. So we talked about this phenomenon in episode two, the, the digital sort start phenomenon, which is basically the idea that, oh, well, if you're going to be posing in your bar and knickers on Instagram, then you deserve it. You're asking for it. You know, in the same way that a rape victim who goes on the night out and wears a short skirt and drinks a lot is blamed for being raped. Obviously, that's a really horrifying misogynistic attitude, but it is a really prevalent attitude still. And what we would hear from some of the victims was that there was a sense from their family and friends that, if you don't want to be stalked and if you don't want to be harassed and just stop posting pictures of yourself, you know, in, in swimming costumes online and then people will go away because this is basically your fault. Which is, you know, when you unpick that, it, it's it's such a damaging and horrible message to be sending to women. Like no one should be treated like that, regardless of what you post online. They should be able to live their lives however they want. 
you know, you said that the police kind of minimised them and and some of their families had this attitude. Do you think that's the attitude of the police as well? This kind of like, how short was your skirt attitude? Do you think that's that's an attitude that came up in the criminal justice system as well? I wouldn't want to go that far. I'm sure some police officers have those attitudes. I think a really more charitable interpretation of what went wrong there would be that police officers, firstly, are really busy. You know, there's been significant cuts to policing due to austerity. And secondly, don't really understand social media a lot of the time. So don't actually really understand how you investigate cyberstalking. And then, you know, maybe there was a little bit of misogyny mixed up in there as well, or, you know, misconceptions about what cyberstalking actually is. What we often see is uh, police officers giving stalkers cautions for malicious communications as opposed to prosecuting them for cyber stalking because it's easier to give someone a caution than it is to actually go to the effort of bringing a case to the CPS and trying to get a prosecution so you know it might have also been a little bit of laziness or wanting the easy option it's a whole mixture of things and you know there are great police officers out there who really care about this as as has been seen you know by the fact that PC Kevin Anderson got that conviction and worked really hard for it but unfortunately there are so many crimes in the UK that aren't currently being properly resourced and investigated and stalking is one of them. I thought it was really interesting where you talk about the um, the Malcolms and the harassment and the, the way that they're sort of used interchangeably, even though they are very different crimes, the punishments are different. I had an experience a few years ago, a man that I dated basically took some photos of me without my knowledge and I later found out that he had done this and I reported him to the police and the police were like, oh, we'll try and get him on the on the correct charge for that, which is voyeurism. But basically they were like, oh, well, if he keeps messaging you, you know, we could get him done for harassment. And it's like, but like, I don't want to try and get this guy for harassment because that's not the crime that he's committed against me. The crime that he's committed against me is like quite a bit more serious for a start, carries a much higher sentence if found guilty. But also that's not what he's done. So I found that was really interesting, the kind of conflation of these different charges as as a means to get any result almost. I'm really sorry to hear about that experience. And I'm not surprised that that's how the police responded. It's just, you know, taking the path of least resistance, isn't it? And I can kind of understand, right? Like if you're a police officer and you've got like a million cases on your desk and some woman comes into you and says, someone's sending me abusive messages on Instagram or my ex-boyfriend has taken photos of me without my permission and I'm scared he's going to use them somewhere. And you've also got like a million like burglaries and robberies mm. and rapes and all this other stuff to investigate. I can understand why that individual police officer might think, I don't have time to deal with this. This isn't important enough for me to deal with. But I think we need to look at the system here. This system shouldn't be set up like this. There should be police officers who are well-resourced enough to be able to investigate all of those crimes because every single crime is really damaging for its victim and you didn't do anything to deserve having that happen to you and neither did Matthew's victims. And it's not right that we basically dismiss the suffering of people just because we determined that it's not of a high enough standard to investigate. You know, Matthew cumulatively did so much damage to so many people and caused so much harm. And it was able to go on for such a long time. And it's not in his best interest that he's he's able to do that for such a long time as well. You know, like if there had been earlier intervention when it was at a lower stage of offending, it would have been in everybody's interest. So you really have to try and 
crack down on this stuff sooner rather than later because it can escalate Mm. and get far more scary and far more dangerous but unfortunately that doesn't happen there's quite a few sort of twists and turns in this story and um, you're obviously quite keen not to spoiler it for people who who want to listen but you cover loads of different themes in it like the criminal justice system for victims and for perpetrators of crime mental health issues I wondered did you end up feeling that Matthew was kind of a victim as well yes I did and I didn't expect to think that I've spent my entire professional life reporting on violence against women and girls and I consider stalking to be a form of violence against women and girls and I've always taken an incredibly victim focused approach to that sort of reporting rightly so I think and I haven't really cared too much about the people who do these things to be honest with you But when I started digging into the Matthew Hardy story and speaking to his victims and speaking to the police officers and the people in the story, what emerged complicated things for me personally, because I came to realise that Matthew had arguably had a really difficult childhood. He is autistic. He has a learning disability. He has mental health needs. He experienced, from what I've heard, quite severe bullying at school and He was just a sort of very unhappy and disturbed individual for many different reasons, in part due to his additional needs, but also in part due to his life circumstances. I think that understanding the influences on a person's life and what might have prompted them to do what they did is not the same as justifying or excusing it. What Matthew did was appalling and horrific and horrifying, but many people in our criminal justice system have experienced some form of trauma. Many people in our criminal justice system have additional needs. And ultimately, if you really care about victims and wanting to protect victims, you have to try and understand why people do the things they do. You know, I think very few people just wake up one day and decide that they're just going to start terrorising women online. You know, that there's so many different attitudes that go into forming that person's worldview and making them think that that's an acceptable thing to do. So, yes, I have empathy for him and I'm fascinated by what might have been going on in his head to make him behave the way he did. But of course, my primary empathy and my primary compassion is always going to be for his victims because they did not deserve to have what happened to them happen to them. And they always need to be front and centre of all of our considerations. So your work is quite varied. You've covered quite a lot of different sort of themes in in your wider work beyond this podcast. With your colleague Lucy Osborne, you uncovered the sexual harassment allegations against the actor Noel Clark. You were nominated for an Orwell Award for your Lost to the Virus series about the victims of COVID-19. But there is a sort of theme that kind of runs through these things, which is social justice, would you say, or social injustice? Is that what you're drawn to? I think social justice definitely does appearing quite a lot of my stories as a theme but I think in all honesty I'm just interested by human stories I love writing about all sorts of things and sometimes I'll write a story about you know airplane stowaways and what prompts people to make desperate journeys in the holds of airplanes and nearly die in the process of doing that to have a better life in a more prosperous country but I also love writing about you know like dumb funny stuff too like why men grow giant vegetables at giant vegetable growing competitions like you know why do they (laughs) 
I think there's I think there's some phallic stuff going on there, <laughs> which I don't have a problem with. I think it's I think it's a very healthy outlet. <laughs> it's better than like a really really fast car or something, isn't it? Or like I don't know. Yeah, it's so wholesome. I love it. Like I'm like, yeah, you don't grow your giant marrow if that makes <laughs> you feel like a man. Like I think this is actually a really untoxic form of masculinity. I'm completely pro it. And you know, there's no social justice theme to that. I just think it's kind of a funny, interesting human story. So I've always in my entire career never. Had had a beat and I, I at first I used to think oh maybe I should have a beat maybe that would make me a better journalist and I've come to the conclusion that I'm actually really pleased that I don't because it means I can write about anything that I find interesting and I find almost anything interesting which is great so I feel really fortunate and lucky to be able to to sort of turn my hand at lots of different things well I know what's next for you because you're about to go on maternity leave but uh any ideas beyond that what might be next for you Sharon god no I don't think more than like a week in advance (laughs) I don't have a I don't have a single clue (laughs) to try and survive my maternity leave and emerge with a healthy happy baby that's my only ambition really for the future where can we follow you online I am at Sharon underscore Carlet at instagram and sharon is spelled s-i-r-i-n carla is k-a-l-e like the vegetable and i'm at the dalston years on twitter don't ask me why that's my handle it's a very long story more importantly where can we listen to can i tell you a secret you can listen to it anywhere you get your podcasts all good reputable podcast providers so your apple podcast app listen to it on spotify you can listen to it on the guardian website if you want to although i feel like that's a bit more clunky than listening to it on a podcast app Wherever you're listening to this podcast, go and search Sharon's podcast next. Thank you. I hope I hope people like it. It's been a real labour of love. Thank you very much for joining me, Sharon. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Hello, Hannah here. Just popping in to do a little intro to this upcoming interview, which is with the actors Marion Bailey and Kate Farhi who are currently on stage playing the Queen and Margaret Thatcher, respectively, in a revival of Moira Buffini's satire, Handbagged, which is at the Kiln Theatre in London. Now, we did this interview before the play opened on the morning of the 8th of September. That date might ring a bell for some of you, because this turned out to be one of the most oddly timed interviews I've ever done as a journalist, in that about 10 minutes after I got off the Zoom call, it was announced that the Queen was very unwell and within another few hours it was announced that she had died. Which should explain why we've sat on this interview for a little while and why we refer to the Queen in the present tense throughout. There is still plenty of time to go and see Handbagged. If you can, it's on until October the 29th. You can find more details at kilntheatre.com. Maybe we could start with Kate if you could tell me what it is about this play that made you want to be in it? Well, it is a brilliantly written satire, which unfolds as a, almost a competition between an older queen and an older Thatcher, looking back on the days when they had their audiences together, when Thatcher was PM, and fighting over ownership, really, of who said what, who got it right, who got it wrong, while all the time trying to maintain the fallacy that they never disagreed. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, you know, there was a, a thing came out in the press 
in those days that they, the Queen was dismayed at many of Thatcher's policies. We will never know what went on behind closed doors, no. but uh, it was outed in the press that the Queen was quite dismayed at some of the more socially divisive acts of Thatcherism. Yeah. Marion, this is not your first rodeo. It's not the first time you've played the Queen. You've played her in, in this play, in fact. Has how you feel about the subject matter changed in the intervening nine or ten years? No, it hasn't changed at all. If anything, you know, what's happening now politically has a great resonance (laughs) uh, where it possibly, some would say, began back in the 1980s. Many of the problems we're possibly facing at the moment may well have grown from that. I would say, if anything, there are very many similarities, which I'm sure audiences will spot. So Moira, who wrote it, Moira Buffini, has sort of updated it a little bit just so that we've tweaked those aspects of it that are now perhaps more pertinent to a modern audience. And I, yes, as you say, I did it nine years ago, unbelievably. And it went into the Vaudeville Theatre in the West End and it was a big hit. People loved it. Mm. But here's an interesting thing about that, though. We began at this theatre, now the kiln that was the tricycle. And then we moved into the West End with, of course, a lot of tourists from all over the world. I would say... The character of Margaret Thatcher <laughs> was uh, applauded sometimes in the West End, which she certainly wasn't in the original. <laughs> I've got a question for Kate about that, in fact. But I have one more question for you. In the intervening nine years, you have actually played the Queen Mother. You played her in The Crown. And I'm wondering if that at all altered your perspective on the Queen. Well, I don't think it altered it. It enriched it. I mean, the Queen Mother is a wholly different character to take on board, which I loved playing. It was a great gig. And of course, we now know the Queen as she's got older. But my feeling towards the Queen, and I think for a lot of people, whether Republican or monarchist is, and I'm probably slightly (laughs) fearing towards the Republican side of things, but I think She is a remarkable woman uh, who has done her duty and stuck with it on a daily basis in a way that I find hard to imagine what it must be like to wake up every day with very few options in your life. Yeah, really remarkable woman who has done her duty and has served a purpose in our society. Sort of, she's been a cohesive figure, I suppose. Uh, I I always say, I remember my mum who died about 10 years ago, but when she was 100, getting her card signed from the Queen, it it did mean something to Mm. her in a way that, you know, she might not have felt quite the same about getting a congratulatory card from Boris Johnson, for example, you know. (laughs) It serves a purpose, but I'm sure it will change when we no longer have the Queen with us. Now, Kate, Margaret Thatcher, two words that inspire either a rant or a passionate defence. How do you go about inhabiting that role? And what is interesting for me is that whatever my feelings might be about Margaret Thatcher, and we know that you either people either loved her or loathed her, and I know which side I'm on, mm. I don't have to really bring that to the play because what Moira has written is absolutely a fantastic line from her beginning to her end in which you can see how she began all of those things which we're now seeing come to fruition, the whole monetarist policy, the deregulation of industry, Mm. all of that began with her. And look at us now. Yeah. (laughs) Deregulation of banks. Banks, yes, yes, Uh that was major. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, she's a terrific character to play, of course, yeah. In the writing, there is, I find, considerable sympathy at moments for Thatcher, the woman. Would you say, Kate? Occasionally, yes. Yeah, yeah. There are, you can see, you could, but well, because we have her beginning and we also have her decline. What's interesting now, of course, is that even if you loathed her, you can acknowledge that she was a conviction politician. Mm. She had integrity and honesty and absolutely believed in all of those policies. And now, after Boris Johnson, (laughs) it's hard to imagine that ever again, really. Yeah. It's easy to look back at past prime ministers and think, oh, were they really that bad? Was John Major that bad? When you look at Boris Johnson, they all sort of fall into yes, a, they do. have a different yes. light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There's a line in the play after Thatcher leaves Downing Street. One of the actors says there was dancing in the street. People thought that things could only get better. Mm-hmm. And they did for a while. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, of course they for did. Most for most people, while. things yeah. were starting to get better. Um, and we may now be on the downward slope again, but um, definitely on the downward slope. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, as well, you know, as women, we, have a, we now have our third female prime minister. And part of me thinks, you know, that should be something to celebrate. It should be. It feels like it is. But sadly, all of those women have come from a party that I can't get behind. So you're kind of torn between a respect, particularly with Thatcher, because she was the first, a respect between what she has achieved in the time that she achieved it, but also not agreeing at all with any of what she did when she got that power. I mean, she was famously anti-feminist, wasn't she? Mm. But, you know, I had to admire her of the morning after the Brighton bombing. I mean, that took some guts. You know, there was something about her that, you know, um, know, to stand up after that horrific night, despite the damage that's been done to the country as a result of her years. Yeah. Some would say she didn't do that damage. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's still, she is still a controversial figure, which is part of the joy of this play, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. How audiences respond. Yes, yes. um, Because she is still controversial. She does still... Raise emotions, raise <laughs> yes. emotions. You know, I did this um, play uh, touring around England, and the reaction so to the places yeah. were extraordinary. In Salford, they booed, and in Canterbury, they cheered her. They 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 didn't really get that that we were actually satirising her. But in Salford, they were so acute. They were on it right at the first moment. I'm sure they would be, yeah. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about these two women is they're both, to a certain degree, all front. We only see what we want to see of them. But unlike something like The Crown, where we spend time with the Queen and it's, it's an attempt to try to understand her, I suppose the joy in this is that Thatcher and, and the Queen become characters as such. It doesn't matter if it's the real Thatcher no, or it's no, the real. No, exactly. They are caricatures yeah. in yes. a good way, you know, I think multidimensional caricatures. And of course, also on stage with me, you know, me and Kate is um, our younger queen who's called Liz in it and uh, Mag's the younger Thatcher. So that's, you know, part of the dynamic of the play. And let's not overlook two wonderful actors who play how many characters between 27, 27 right? characters. Yeah. Between That's insane. And they do a fantastic <laughs> job at sort of 
literally break next speed from Ronald to Nancy <laughs> Reagan to you know Neil Kinnock they play a wide range and it's fast moving and it yes it is Oh, and I think we don't want to forget to mention it's very, very funny. That was the first thing that caught my eye about it, because I, I do love satire. Because people keep saying that satire is dead, and I I don't know that I believe that. I think there are still, no. still things no. to satirise. It's Absolutely. just... Absolutely. No, but I know what they mean. You know, it's just as if the, the real world has gone beyond satire. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but no, I think you can still... I mean, Boris Johnson was satirised over and over again, and then he'd come out with something that was as you say, beyond satire. Now, you being on stage with younger versions of your characters, it occurred to me to ask what maybe you might say to a younger version of yourself about the career that you have embarked on, what you've learned in that uh, time. Well, we both have actress daughters. So. Oh, OK. Then. <laughs> we say, we do yeah, say yeah. something. I mean, <laughs> I try to say as little as possible. <laughs> I think it's quite nice for a young actor, especially if you've got acting parents, to discover the world of theatre and film for yourself mm. and not to be told, don't forget to do this and, by the way, look out for that. And that way they're sort of following in your footsteps instead of creating it for themselves, which I think is very important. I agree. And I also, you know, the, the world has changed of the arts we know the arts have their difficulties for one many reasons we know about but i i just feel i have to continue to, to, to encourage my daughter and and to sort of keep the faith keep believing in what she's mm. doing despite yeah. some of the unpleasant business aspects of our business you know people aren't always treated very nicely but then they never work it's always quite a tough business the strange thing about acting is you have to be pretty thin-skinned and sensitive to have the imagination and empathy to do it, but you have to have the hide of a rhinoceros to withstand the business side of it and yeah. the, the kickbacks and the rejections, and yeah. <laughs> which is a strange combination to acquire in life. But I hope my daughter's happy. I never tried to discourage her, but that's because she was very good. Yeah. If she hadn't been very good, I would have said, you know what, just have a think about something else. But because she's so good, I can only keep boosting her. And she's done some great work. There's also the, the, the fact that when we were young actors, the theatre in the UK was flourishing. Mm. There were repertory theatres in every town, sometimes two. There was a proper community of actors that met each other, that knew each other, that had a, a, a similar life experiences in the business. And also we felt that the arts, the theatre particularly, was valued in this country. I mean, we all know that the, the revenue that the UK makes from our industry is massive. But in the times we're in now, it's not uncommon for a young actor to think, what's the point of what I'm doing? Yeah. Is, why am I doing this when I should, be, I should be at the food bank today instead? So there's that aspect also that needs encouraging, that actually the understanding that arts are very much at the heart of a civilised society. And if you... If you pull back on that, we're lost. Yes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm old enough to remember, again, yes, the rep, rep system. I, I agree with all that Kate's just said. Um, but, but, of course, it was the theatre tickets were much cheaper. I can remember yeah. my first job in 1974 was at Oldham Rep, which was a fortnightly rep, and there would be people who booked every fortnight, just ordinary people. It wasn't so much the theatre wasn't for, you know, the wealthy. 
It was for people who didn't have much yeah. money. Uh, they could afford to come to see every single play. And some plays they liked. In some plays, they'd stand in the bar ranting about how much they hated it afterwards. But nevertheless, they turned up to see a play. And I yeah. think that would be unthinkable for most ordinary people these days. Yes. And, and all of that happened under Thatcher. From between 1980 mm. and 1990, most of the reps in the country were closed. And the ones that stayed open couldn't afford to maintain a repertory company for a season so they would do a play occasionally, gather up a group, do a play, and they'd take touring plays. And at Liverpool Everyman, where I started in the 70s, they tried about five years ago to start a repertory company again, and they managed it for about a year and a half. It was just not viable financially. That's incredible. I mean, the, the Everyman is 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 legendary. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> can you actually? Okay, then, can you tell me a bit more about working there in the seventies? Because I'm fascinated. Oh well, so my very first job was at the Playhouse in in Liverpool, and during that time, I went up, of course, and saw a play at the Everyman, and it just blew my head off. I thought, oh, I see, this is this is the place to be, and then I did after I did two years, two whole seasons there. It was absolutely fantastic. It was mostly in my era due to Alan Dosser, who was the director of The Everyman. And he, he was very, very bold, encouraged us to be very daring. It felt quite kind of dangerous sometimes. Also, the Playhouse in Liverpool at that time in the 70s had, as Marion just described, a kind of subscription audience. People would come and see everything regularly. Mm. It was part of their lives. But at the Everyman, it was completely different. And we tried, We had to go out and get an audience and encourage the, the audience around Liverpool 8 to, to think that going to the theatre was something for them. So we did, we did shows in pubs and bars and schools and in the theatre. And Alan Dosser was, oh, he was just... He was just revolutionary for us. We all, all of us who were there in that period, will, I think I'm speaking for us all, uh, really cherish it as, as a, a point in our careers that changed the course. And we wouldn't be the actors we are today without that at the beginning. And certainly coming out of drama school, which I went to Bristol Vic and it was wonderful, it was absolutely wonderful. But it didn't, really give you a taste of what theatre could do. And, and The Everman was very political. It addressed the local audience. It addressed the issues of the day all the time. You ended up with a very, very live contact between the actors on the stage and the audience. Uh, it was very, very interactive sometimes. Yeah. Well, great. And also, I mean, I didn't have the privilege of working there. I mean, there were a few theatres, the Citizens, Glasgow Citizens. Yeah, yeah. Um, it felt a very, very optimistic time. And this was about the time I was leaving drama school and we really <laughs> felt we might be able to change the world Absolutely. a bit. You know, we were so yeah. optimistic yeah. Then and so focused on what we might be able to do to help society and to yeah. be useful within society. Yeah. Because now actors have such a reputation for being a bit of a waste of space. And that's all to do with the amount of money spent on publicity mm. and well, all the reasons, things we know about. 
But yes, as a young actor, that's the equivalent of Liverpool. Every man doesn't exist, sadly. You know, they don't have that opportunity anymore to feel that they can be a useful (laughs) member of society. Mm. Of course, all storytelling is useful. I always remind myself of that, that this is something, you know, that I'm part of telling a story and hopefully I can make someone's life better either by just cheering them up a bit or perhaps they'll recognise something in their own lives they can relate to. I watched a documentary just the other day and it's about uh, a really small town in America that this horrific crime happened in and a lot of people, six people were put in prison for this crime and then eventually lawyers figured out basically they'd been fitted up by the police as was done in those times and they were released from prison but the local community didn't really accept that these people were actually innocent. And what this documentary is about is about a small group of actors that decide to put on a verbatim play about the interrogation of these suspects. And if anybody ever thinks that all of this stuff about how theatre can change the world is a load of sort of, you know, artistic nonsense, should watch that because it is incredible, the impact that that one play, Mm. one night has on that town. Everybody suddenly wakes up to this massive injustice that's happened. Oh, that's That's brilliant. Really, yeah, oh, that was incredible. Great. That's very heartening. Yeah, you know, I did it. I worked at the Royal Court back. In fact, in, during Thatcher's time, and we, we did quite a lot of verbatim theatre. And I think quite often now, actors say to themselves, "Why am I doing this? What's the, what's mm. the people like me coming to see it, or people who want something to talk about? You know, um, at a dinner party on a Saturday night." And that's a very heartening thing to hear. It that, is, um, isn't it? What we do still can, yeah. Have an effect. Marion and Kate, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank Brilliant. you. Very nice to talk to you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we whip off our shirts in celebration as we discuss all things women's sport. Now, I realise that doesn't actually sound great in this context, but I'm referring to the Brandy Chastain, Chloe Kelly goal celebration classic you'll all have seen slash heard about after the Women's Euro final this summer. Anyway, the reason I mention this is in honour of the international friendly that took place between the Lionesses and the US national women's team on Friday last week. The European champions versus the world champions in a sold out Wembley stadium. I was supposed to be there for it. And I'm not moaning about the train strike, but basically I couldn't go in the end. You'll probably have seen already that we won. 2-1 thanks to goals from Lauren Hemp and a Georgia Stanway penalty. Sophia Smith scored for the US. It's our first victory against them since 2017 and not a bad place to be 10 months away from a World Cup. It's probably worth mentioning that it hadn't been a great week for the US after a report into the United States National Women's Soccer League found that abuse and misconduct was systemic in the top flight. Indeed, the Lionesses stood in support of the US women's team holding a banner that read protect the players before kickoff. The investigation was launched last year after allegations were made against North Carolina Courage head coach and Englishman Paul Riley, who was later sacked. He denies the allegations. The report found that abuse and misconduct, verbal and emotional abuse and sexual misconduct had become systemic, spanning multiple teams, coaches and victims. It added abuse in the NWSL is rooted in a deeper culture in women's soccer 
that normalises verbally abusive coaching and blurs boundaries between coaches and players. Now, I don't want to in any way diminish the findings of the report or the seriousness of them, but I do think it should be noted that this isn't just in women's football. It's not just in football. I think these themes are rife within sport more generally. I think some of it is societal and some of it relates to the power dynamic between players and coaches. I definitely don't think it needs to be this way, however, and obviously shining a light on it is the first part of repairing a broken system. While we're talking about the World Cup, England have already qualified, but Scotland, Wales and the Republic of Ireland all now face playoffs for a chance to compete in the tournament. By the time you listen to this, you'll know how Wales fared against Switzerland and how Scotland and Ireland got on when they came up against each other. The two top-ranked winners will go through and a third will face an inter-confederation playoff in February. That is to say that these qualifiers are in the European Confederation. There are six in total, Africa, Asia, North and Central America in the Caribbean, Oceania and South America. All very straightforward. Moving to the Rugby World Cup, which kicked off at the weekend, a cracking start for England, who beat Fiji by a mere 84 points to 19. But let's not be those people. England are, after all, favourites to win. And anyway, we're up against France next, who are all right, though I do remain quietly confident. Wales just edged Scotland 18-15. Scotland take on Australia this weekend, while Wales will play New Zealand. Wales play at 3.15am on Sunday, and Scotland play at 3am on Saturday, both our time. So if you're a much more fun person than I am, you might like to cap off a wild night out by sticking ITV or S4C on for a watch. The England match is at a much more reasonable time of 8am on Saturday, so watch it with your cornflakes and ask yourself why you're eating cornflakes, because they suck. Also at the weekend, Great Britain's Savannah Marshall will fight Clarissa Shields when they compete for the title of the undisputed middleweight champion of the world on Saturday at London's O2 Arena. I'm sorry, that was so shit, but... I had to try it. Shields has held multiple titles across different weight divisions, including the WBA, WBC, IBF, WBF and the ring middleweight titles, which she currently holds. And Marshall holds the WBO middleweight title and Shields wants it. You can watch it on Sky Sports Main Event and Sky Sports Arena to find out if she gets it. That's all for me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which kissing story did you make us watch this week? <laughs> this week we watched Rob Reiner's 1987 fantasy adventure comedy, The Princess Bride. Coming three years after Reiner's iconic This Is Spinal Tap and a year after his boy's own coming-of-age adventure Stand By Me, it might have a woman in the title, but this is also a full-on wang fest. This may or may not explain why all three have always been firm favourites in my household. That's right, I am starting this with my powder fully wet. I'd also add that with those two films that came before The Princess Bride, Reiner proved he could do satire and sweetness, which I think came in very handy. The Princess Bride, the feature film, is based on the 1973 novel, brace yourself, The Princess Bride, colon, S. Morgenstern's classic tale of true love and high adventure, comma, The Good Parts version, by William Goldman. I say based on. Goldman wrote the screenplay, and it is an almost carbon copy of the meat of the book. As for Goldman, you may remember his screenplay writing from films such as All the President's Men and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. 
A little heads up, though, to anyone listening who hasn't seen The Princess Bride, it is much, much, much sillier than any of the films named so far. Jen, do you remember sleeping through all the presidents then? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, I do now you've mentioned it. I was like, oh, that sounds familiar. Yep, I do remember sleeping through it. (laughs) Reiner had been in love with Goldman's book since receiving it as a gift from his dad, and his love really shows. This is an over-the-top adventure story that affectionately pokes fun at over-the-top adventure stories. It's a romance that rolls its eyes at the kissing bits, and yeah, it is still sort of a love story. But the true hero is the all-conquering power of friendship. As Reiner had already demonstrated in Spinal Tap, having a deep affection for what you're ripping the piss out of really helps. And it has fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. As Columbo tells the Wonder Years Fred Savage. Oh yeah, the cast is insane. Carrie Elways is our hero Wesley, and Robin Wright is Buttercup, our titular heroine, wonderfully assisted in their reunion by Andre the Giant as Fezzik and Mandy Patinkin as Inigo Montoya. But it's the constellation of cameos that really shine. Christopher Guest, Wallace Shawn, Mel Smith, Peter Cook, Carol Kane and Billy Crystal. The film was a modest success at the box office, but it was its release to the home video market which, quite rightly, allowed it to become a cult classic. Critics loved it, with our old pal Roger Ebert giving it three and a half stars out of four in his batshit (laughs) whatever rating he does. And 30th anniversary reviews five years ago doling out top marks left, right and centre. It still has a 97% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Its legacy is pretty hefty too. It launched a boatload of catchphrases, enabled tongue-in-cheek fairy tale homages such as Shrek, served as inspiration for Antonio Banderas's Zorro, and made Wallace Shawn's life a misery, with countless fans shouting INCONCEIVABLE at him until he died, basically. Not of that, obviously. That would be etc, etc. I'm confident you'll have seen a, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Meme or gif used by both sides of an argument somewhere on Twitter. And I can certainly think of a few uses for it myself. Have either of you ever seen it before? Yes, I have. Yeah, I think I've only seen it once before. I haven't. And do you remember, I can't remember which Disney film it was, but that I discovered that my entire family had seen it loads of times and I'd never seen Mm. it. And I was like, did they wait till I went out? Well, it was exactly (laughs) the same with this. Because I I saw my mum briefly yesterday and I said, I need to go home and watch a film. When I told her that it was this, she said, oh, is that the one with Peter Falk in it? And then I also briefly saw my brother and I said, I've got to go home and watch The Princess Bride. And he said to me, yeah, don't bother coming here again if you didn't like it. (laughs) Yes, Chris. And... And I discovered that, and this might not mean a lot to you, but I discovered that when I used to watch Game of Thrones with my dad, not always with him, but I would talk to him afterwards. And when, what's he called, Pedro Pascal, I think he's called, turned up as the Viper in it, who is the guy who is has come from dawn to avenge the death of his sister. Every time he was on the screen, my dad used to say... My name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father, I shall have my revenge. And I didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. This is what he says. Prepared to die. That's it. Prepared to die. Right. Every single time, right, the vibe came on, my dad would say that. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And now I've discovered it was also this film. So, no, I've never seen it. And I do not have an explanation for why I've never seen it, given my family seems to watch it quite regularly. Ah, interesting. I wonder why there were certain films that were like, don't tell Hannah. (laughs) Yeah. Weird. Okay, the plot, which is deliciously, sillily, twisty-turny, so I'm going to try to keep it as simple as I can. 
Fred Savage plays a young Hannah Dunleavy, ill in bed and upset this might be a kissing story. (laughs) And by this, I mean the book his grandpa, that's Peter Falk, has come to read him. And so too the story. Buttercup taunts farm boy Wesley, who is madly in love with her, before realising actually she's madly in love with him. Too poor to get hitched, he leaves to seek his fortune, but is captured by the dread pirate Roberts, who infamously never leave survivors. Five years later, for reasons never explained, Buttercup is about to be forcibly married to Prince Humperdinck, that's Chris Sarandon, when she is kidnapped by three outlaws. Smart-ass Sicilian Vicini, that's Wallace Shawn, and his hired help, revenge-blind fencing whiz Inigo Montoya, Patinkin, and a rhyming giant, Fezzik, played by Andre the Giant. But a masked man is following them. Who could it be? I mean, it's, it's Wesley Ovs. Although now he's also mm. the dread pirate Roberts. Keep up. He bests Inigo and Fezzik, who later go on to become heroes rather than villains, and he tricks Vecini into drinking a deadly poison before rescuing Buttercup and revealing his real identity while falling down a hill. And so, Buttercup and Wesley are reunited for an action-packed five minutes as they make it through the fire swamp before being captured by Prince Humperdinck and his men. Buttercup says, all right, I'll marry you to save Wesley, don't hurt him, and he promises he won't, and she believes him, because she's a bit thick. Instead, Count Rugen, Christopher Guest, who also happens to be the six-fingered bloke who's killed Anigo's dad, keep up, prepare to die, prepare to die, dumps Wesley in the pit of despair with Mel Smith, who's been covered in flour. There, Wesley is tortured to death, mostly. Step up Miracle Max, that's Billy Crystal, and his missus, that's Carol Kane, to talk a bit about sandwiches and bring Wesley back to life, albeit one body part at a time. Wesley, Inigo and Fezzik storm the castle. Inigo finally gets his revenge on Count Rugen. Wesley rescues Buttercup and Fezzik nicks some horses. The end. Even though my powder is very wet, I would like to start with what is, for me, the only duff note in The Princess Bride. I wondered if you could guess what it is. It's The Princess Bride, Buttercup. She is so boring and annoying uh, and dim. Uh. I mean, yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I'm scared to say anything, Mickey, because my job and my relationship with my brother <laughs> very much, very much depend on me liking this film. Like the beginning bit, you're just like, well, she's a bit of an arsehole, isn't she? And then and where does this like, where does this love story come from? The backstory isn't particularly well fleshed out, shall we say. She also goes on about how she loved his eyes and the eyes are about the only things she can see of the pirate. So you'd think yeah. that she would have recognised him. Yeah, but I think that all ties into how silly it is. Like there's lots of things that yeah. are very mm. silly. I know what I will say is that they are a very attractive couple. They are smashing looking, like, aren't they? Like disgustingly attractive couple. I don't know that I would have recognised her. Really? There's Robin Wright, unless it had come up, yeah. Interesting. I think it's annoying that Ryan has chosen not to give her more to do because she's really talented. You know, you give Robin Wright something to do and she's very good. She's very good in House of Cards. Mm. She's sort of the epitome of the Smurfette principle. Do you both know what the Smurfette principle is? I don't, but as soon as you've said it, I sort of feel like I do. (laughs) It Mm. kind of makes sense. Being the only woman in a group of men there purely to be stolen and then saved. That is the role that she plays. Yeah. Now I'm gathering from the faces that the listeners can't see that neither of you are massive fans of The Princess Bride. Talk me through your emotions. Um, <laughs> I, I, I did think it was a shame that my bastard family didn't invite me to watch <laughs> it when it was age appropriate for me because, yeah, I can understand why as a less cynical youngster 
I probably would have liked it more. Not to say I didn't like it, and I think there are some bits in it that are really funny. And obviously, you know, Christopher Guest, Peter Cook, Mel Smith, Billy Crystal. There are people that just made me go, hey, just because they turned up in (laughs) it because you love them. So, um, yeah, I didn't think it was bad. I didn't think it was wonderful. I thought it was somewhere in between. It's interesting that you say age appropriate because I think one of its big pulls for me is it's worked at every age and I didn't come to it as a kid but either because you first no yeah I but didn't. when did you first watch I was it? in my 20s when I first saw it interesting and I just really like the silliness yeah I mean it has got some it's, it's pretty well written it has got some really funny lines in it when Sean Wallace talks about the worst mistake you can make <laughs> other than starting a land war in Asia. That's funny. (laughs) That's really funny. So, yeah, there are bits like that that are jokes for the adults, do you know what I mean, that are in there, definitely. So so that's funny. I mean, literally everything Peter Cook does in this is funny. Peter Cook with a speech impediment. I mean, I could just listen to that for hours and hours and hours with apologies to people with speech impediments. And I was immediately really fond of it just because, like I say, the amount of times I had heard my dad say, my name is Inigo Matoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Um, so, yeah, I I don't know where I thought that was from when he was quoting it. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know why it didn't occur to me to ask. I think I thought oh, it must be Highlander or something um, and just left it there. Jen? Interestingly, in my memory... Inigo Montoya was played by Gerard Depardieu. <laughs> That's who I was expecting to see in this film. So I was very surprised to learn that it was Mandy Patinkin, who looks very different 35 years ago. So I did watch this as a child. I think that I had a friend who really, really loved it. And I didn't really like it as a kid. I think I found it... I didn't really ever like silly stuff. Like, I didn't really like silly stuff, like, even when I was age... When it was, like, age-appropriate. So I don't have that, like, nostalgic or or sentimental or, or whatever draw to it I did enjoy it more this time round than I did as a child because I do think Hannah's right there are bits of it that are funny and well written and well drawn and and all of that but it is for my tastes it's too silly like I still don't really like that stuff and I never have done so it, it yeah basically but I don't think it's shit I just don't think it is mm. my cup of tea you keep saying this phrase age appropriate I do not think it means what you think it means uh. I thought of something else, and you're going to correct me again. And bear in mind, I've only watched this once, so I'm unable to quote it. When he knocks out Andre the Giant, he says something like, I hope you dream of large women, which <laughs> also made me laugh quite a lot. I loved Andre the I like obviously, growing up with two brothers and WWF, as it was then known, and now is not, because that's the thing with the pandas. Um, yeah. Wrestling, obviously, I know who Andre the Giant is, so that's like, you know, that's kind of fun. And I do think, as you have both sort of said, I do think the cast is, like, just fucking tremendous. So, yeah, I think there's loads of, like, good things about it, but, yeah. Another thing I wanted to talk about is it is deliberately shonky, right? Rob Reiner has clearly just told any sense of realism to jog on. I love that the rodent of unusual size is clearly a human just in a costume, that the outdoor sets are hilarious. You can see the paint marks on the rocks. And in a world, particularly the fantasy world, now dominated by CGI, I wondered how that worked or didn't work for you. I didn't even like, I just thought it looked 35 years old. That's Yeah. 
basically. I didn't I didn't sort of think I didn't clock that oh it's deliberately shonky. I just thought, oh, it's just 35 years old and it's, you know, it's not aged terribly well in that respect. Yeah, I didn't know if it was deliberate. I wouldn't say it was deliberately shonky. It kind of reminded me of a pantomime mm. in a strange way. You know, like when they were cutting, when he kept cutting the vines, there was like a really sort of almost stagey feel to it rather than a film. Or no, no, I don't mean that. I mean, a film that's way older, mm. almost like, yeah, you know, like where they're basically just standing on the set and the set is only 10 metres by 10 metres so they can't actually walk that far. So they have to stand around in those bits. Carrie Elways was cast because he looks very like Errol Flynn. And it has mm. got that sense of sort of an Errol Flynn movie where he's like... Didn't he go on to play Robin Hood in some Robin In Hood, Robin Hood, uh, Men in Tights. tights. yeah. I wonder when that's got a birthday, because that is also very silly. So bang in my wheelhouse. There are jokes in it that I think you could probably say are saying something and maybe they're not saying the thing that they're saying, but they still work. So, for example, you know, when the old man walks her along and she gives him a kiss <laughs> and then she says, I'm going to go and kill myself. And he says, oh, she gave me a kiss. You know, I mean, I don't think that he's trying to make a feminist point there, but actually, oddly, there is a feminist point there, which is, you know... Just don't listen to what she says. She's just, uh, oh, she gave me a kiss and everything else was just noise. Yeah. I mean, I think it's because he's very doddery, so he's not really taken in anything. It's interesting that you mentioned feminism, though, Hannah. Thanks for bringing it up on Standard Issue. You're welcome. But on my latest rewatch, I did notice that uh, yeah, Wesley does get a little bit iffy on the old domestic violence front, doesn't he? When she's not sort of recognising him or he thinks that she's not waited for him even though he died... He just, he raises his hand and he's like, and he threatens to slap her. And I was like, oh, that's not fun. So there you go. It lost a little mark for me, even though I love it so much. Yeah. I also, at an entirely random point, would like to congratulate the child from the Wonder Years, whatever he's called, Fred, Fred Savage. Savage, I think. Yeah. For his acting of a child that was ill, because it was actually <laughs> appeared to be ill rather than the <laughs> whatever that you get in bad acting, yeah. which is just heavy breathing and, you know. Yeah, yeah totally. Okay, I know you're all wondering, what did ChristianAnswers.net have to say about The Princess Bride? Quote, there is no nudity and virtually no indecent language. Now, I don't know about you, but I detect some disappointment in that typing. Goes on to say, as is the case in most medieval tales, there is a wizard. Miracle Max and his wife hilariously try to bring someone back to life with magic. This may be difficult to explain to young viewers. Now, I just wondered how that parent explained the resurrection. God. Yeah. God did it. <laughs> Magic. Magic, I believe. Another user on ChristianAnswers.net gives it a negative review, complaining that Inigo prays to the spirit of his dead father for guidance and strength. Um, okay. <laughs> I mean, you'd think they'd be, like, really on board with that, but no. Why not ask Jesus for guidance? Isn't that, like, the spirit of our father as well, Jen? It's all, you know, three in one. I have mentioned Christianity not just as an excellent callback to last week's Rated or Dated, but because there are sort of similarities to the old Jesus story, did you think? Did, no, no, the, the big eyes from Hannah, she did not think. Not really, Mick, it didn't, didn't <laughs> jump out at me, but I, I'm intrigued, please do tell. I'm rushing back to my Catholic school upbringing here. The, the bit where he promises he will always come for her, and she says, what if something bad happens? And he's like, no, even if I die, I'm always going to come for you. And he is resurrected for love, for the redeeming power of love, just like the big JC. Are we to suggest that he then dies three days later? No, I think that is was uh, a stretch. And clutching at Jesus straws. Yeah. Okay. 
All right, then. I won't want you to pull your punches, rated or dated. I don't think it's dated particularly. It's just not for me. Well, you see, I would say the opposite. I would say, obviously, it is dated because it's 1987, but I don't think it's not rated. I think it's a good film. I think I get the deciding vote. I think because it is deliberately shonky, it's aged well because it's just stayed like that. But, you know, I do realise that I am very biased on this one and, of course, I'm giving it a big old rated. What are we watching next week? Next week we're watching one of the films that I told you I keep checking to see when it is because I just couldn't wait to do it on Rated or Dated. Whatever happened to Baby Jane? Mm. Amazing. I'm going to borrow some flour from Mel Gibson. Not Mel Gibson. Mel Smith. (laughs) (laughs) Going to borrow some racist flour from Mel Gibson. (laughs) We've all done it. Standard issue for all women.